be seated. I've told you before, and some of you might remember the story of the Danish philosopher, theologian, Soren Kierkegaard, once being asked by an interested observer. He said, what happens to those who warn in the present age? So students, all the question was meant to ask is, what happens to a preacher or another person that warns sinners about God's judgment and justice? And he answered that question with a parable of sorts. He said, I want you to think of the opening play at a theater house. The first performance at this place. The crowd is packed in when suddenly, unbeknownst to the rest of the room, a fire breaks out backstage. And the clown in his full get-up, who is ready for the performance, he bursts out from behind the curtain and says, Fire! Fire! And, you know, the, the people there there for the performance think the performance has begun. And so they begin to clap and they begin to cheer. And so he waves his arms more wildly, lifts his voice more earnestly, warning them about the fire. But no one's listening because it all seemed to be a happy joke. And Kierkegaard said, that's what happens to people who warn about God's coming judgment. And if you've been paying attention in our readings of Revelation, certainly in some ways, I feel like it's true even as a preacher working through Revelation that according to the world standards of the time, we are preaching and studying nothing more than text after text about this happy joke that no one wants to believe. That God is just, God is righteous, and one of the greatest comforts that belongs to His persecuted people one of the greatest comforts that belongs to his people in the midst of their problems is that he's going to make all things right in the end. So, of course, judgment, according to Revelation, is no happy joke. Uh, Revelation tells us that judgment is real, it's consuming, it's terrifying. And as the text and the story in this prophecy barrels forward, it's coming. And that's what we're going to see tonight in chapter 15. So kids, by now I hope that you remember that the Apostle John's favorite number is the number 7. Hey, he's often structuring this letter on these series of sevens. And we've remarked before how there are these formal series of sevens which represent his various perspectives on the human history between the comings of, of Jesus Christ. And each one of those series of sevens, they, they tend to be introduced with this interlude in heaven. So we saw that with the seven seals. We saw it again with the seven trumpets, and we see it again tonight because chapter 15 is an interlude before the seven bowls pour forth in next week's chapter, Lord willing. And what you see with each one of these cycles of seven, not only is John getting a perspective, of course, on human history, it seems as though he's getting an amplified perspective on the judgments that's going to fall upon the world. And there was an old preacher named Thomas Adams who was once preaching through Second Peter, thinking about the coming return of Jesus Christ, and he lamented, the farthest end of all our thoughts should be the thought of all our ends. And that might seem like a clumsy sentence, students, but all he's saying is how sad it is that the farthest thing from our thoughts often is the end of all things. And of course, when we come to Revelation, what we're getting every single week, aren't we, is a reason to think about the end of all things. But particularly tonight, we're thinking, of course, about the end of all things in terms of the finished wrath 
of God. You know, when was the last time that perhaps in your own time of devotion and meditation you found encouragement and comfort from God's wrath being poured out on the world? Or God's justice falling upon sinners? Well, I hope that you might see some of that reality tonight because the simple theme that we want to take from these eight verses is God's justice is worthy of worship. God's justice is worthy of worship. And it really comes in two parts. You'll see the first four verses essentially are signaled forth by what John sees. And we have it again in verse 5 and following. He sees something again. So well, in the first four verses, notice singing about judgment around the sea of crystal. Then stilled before judgment from the heavenly temple. So singing about judgment, stilled before judgment. Look again at verse 1 as it begins. John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now, if you pay attention to that phrase, which are the last, you might recognize that it has caused no small number of opinions to burst forth of the timing of these things, because maybe what John now is seeing in these seven plagues, which really are the seven bowls that are soon going to pour forth in chapter 16, maybe what he's seeing is just the the end-time judgment that belongs to those last days of history. Or it's certainly even possible, grammatically, he could simply be just saying, well, this is the last of the formal sevenfold series of visions that I've been seeing. This is just the last one. So it's not meant to communicate anything about the timing. And I do think that it's right for us to understand, certainly in keeping with our ongoing interpretive method with, with Revelation. We understand this to be, of course, another sweep through human history from a different vantage point. But if you went back and looked at these various sweeps, there is this kind of escalating and magnified reality to the judgments that are coming. And so it does seem in many ways to have in mind this kind of final climactic judgment that's going to fall upon the world at the end of all things. Even one scholar has said maybe it's just seven different perspectives, these seven bowls on the last judgment itself. But I would want to tell you like everything in Revelation, and preoccupation with chronology can easily cause you to miss the simple point of the text. Because it's simply telling us that there is a time coming when God's wrath, His justice, His judgment will pour forth in a final climactic capacity, which is why the text ends, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So the majority of this first section is taken up with a song. As John continues, you see verse 2, he says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, we've seen that sea of glass before in chapter 4 of Revelation. You might remember us there. We got this great throne room scene up above and underneath. God's feet, as it were, was this sea of crystal glass communicating to us where from the world's perspective all things are in chaos, but from God's perspective it's calm. But importantly here, it's mingled with fire. Chapter 4 didn't tell us that, which seems to be pointing forward to the judgment-like reality getting ready to pour forth from heaven. That is pure, powerful judgment is getting ready to fall in these seven bowls. But again, it's all about a song, this first section. So I want you to see three things about the song. First, who sings it? You see verse 2 continues. And also John sees those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps 
in their hands. Of course, this is a conquering choir, once again, singing forth in heaven. Those perhaps included among them, no doubt, are those martyrs that have lost their lives for the faith in Jesus Christ, their keeping of the testimony of Jesus Christ. But doesn't it belong to even all of us in the Christian life, that revelation is amplifying for us the truth that the Christian life is a military life spiritually, it's a fighting life. Every single day we're to wake up and put on the full armor of God that we might fight the good fight of faith. And this is a fight of faith that does claim many people in their own following of Jesus. But nevertheless, they, through faith in Him and trust in the Savior, they've conquered the beast. They're numbered among this conquering choir that is above. So I wonder if you would be one of those who would join in this heavenly choir because you too have conquered in your own life. But of course, it's a text not only about who's singing, but notice again what verse 2 tells us about where they are singing. Standing beside the sea of glass or the sea of crystal. You could even translate that as standing on the sea of crystal with harps of God in their hands. My kids, if you can remember back into the book of Exodus, do you remember what God's people began to do Immediately after they saw God's justice, they saw God's righteousness poured forth upon Pharaoh and his army at the Red Sea. Right? He closed the waters back in on the enemies of God's people. And what did they begin to do in chapter 15 of Exodus? But begin to sing. And so in a similar way, the conquering choir is pictured as standing next to another sea. Maybe even perhaps standing on this sea. Uh, pointing us forward to what's getting ready to come in the rest of chapter 15, certainly in chapter 16, all of these allusions to Exodus in the plagues that are going to fall in the seven bowls. But you see, God puts in their hands His harp. Now, I wonder if God was to come to you to this day and put His harp in your hand. I wonder if you would have something to play. You know, like that song we often hear in Christmas time. I played my drum for Him because I knew nothing else to do. Of course, if God was to put his harp in your hand, I'm not asking really if you know how to play a harp. Uh, but, but I'm asking, do you know how to make spontaneous melody in your heart to God? Such is your joy and victory in the conquering king whose name is Jesus Christ. This is who's singing. This is where they're singing. But notice verse 3 and 4 is all about what they sing. Verse 3 continues, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So again, it's this kind of echo of Exodus. If you notice verses 3 and 4, it makes it seem like maybe they're just singing the song again of Exodus chapter 15. But that's not exactly true. Because all these phrases are found in Exodus 15. These are kind of phrases pulled from all these various sources in the Old Testament that are true about extolling God's attributes and His character and because this is Moses' song, it's a song of Exodus. And therefore, it's also the Lamb's song, isn't it? Because Jesus Christ, what He brings is the full. He brings the final Exodus. And just like it was with the nation of Israel after victory in that Exodus and so forth, in this victory of the Lamb, singing belongs to the display of God's justice over His enemies. Now, there were a number of years in previous ministry where every single year I tended to go to this large conference, or I should say a large conference of some kind. And, uh, there was one that I went to with some degree of regularity that was primarily thousands of pastors gathering from around the world. And the conference was somewhat well known for its singing. You know, you put 
thousands and thousands of pastors into a room with only pianos singing well-known songs. It, it tended to feel like at certain occasions that uh, the roof of the arena was going to lift off its hinges, such was the volume and power of those gatherings. But I can tell you that that noise, if you've ever experienced something similar, is nothing but like an earthly barbershop quartet compared to this conquering choir. Because look at what they sing. Three and four, great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. You could do a great study of the singing in Revelation and try to squeeze out of it everything that you might possibly be able to grasp related to heavenly worship, true worship. Uh, what you'll often find in Revelation is texts and truths that are telling us that true worship isn't found in a particular style. True worship isn't found in particular decorations. Uh, true worship isn't found in a particular posture. But true worship always comes from knowing who God is. And rejoicing in what God has done. Because you see, if you just glance at verse 3 and 4 again, it's full of who God is. His greatness, His justice, His truthfulness, His holiness, His righteousness. Knowing everything that His character has done for His people. But, of course, what you need to see with verses 3 and 4 is this is a song that focuses on God's judgment. That God's judgment is worthy of worship. That's a song of rejoicing over the conquering of His enemies. This is a song that's even preparing us, isn't it, for the overflow of God's wrath upon the world. I was just remarking with a brother in church not long ago, and we were kind of perusing through our, our church's hymnal, and how compared to other subjects and topics, there are precious few hymns about God's justice and God's judgment. And I hope even the hymnal of your heart might have much more by way of content in terms of God's justice and His wrath and reasons for why He is to be worshipped as the righteous and holy God. So this is the picture of those singing about judgment. Now you see in verse 5 through the end, it's this picture about those stilled before judgment. Look again at verse 5. We're told after this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. That's a clumsy phrase. No, I shouldn't say it's a clumsy phrase. We'll say it's a complex phrase. Now, students, notice the precise location of the angel's departure, the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven. Any of those of you that teach grammar in English know that's too many prepositions in a few phrases. You can even translate it, actually, as the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. And all it's really telling us is that you need to recognize the judgment that's about to be poured forth in the bowls, these vials, these plagues that are going to come on the earth. It comes from, number one, God's presence. It's tabernacle and temple language, isn't it? Not just God's presence, but also it's according to God's word, His testimony, that which is, of course, just and true, as they just sang forth in verse 3. So, Kids, you might have had a time recently, if your childhood was anything like mine, where maybe you disobeyed your parents, and maybe you received some sort of discipline or punishment as a result in it. 
And maybe you thought in your heart or perhaps even spoke out loud, that's not fair. Uh, What this verse is telling us, isn't it, is that no one gets to stand before God's judgment and justice and say, that's not fair. It's right. It's deserved. And I want you to see, even in verse 5, it seems to have this, this beautiful allusion to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and His role as judge, because we know from Revelation chapter 21 that in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no temple, because God and the Lamb is the temple. Here it's talking about a temple. We've seen so many times, haven't we, that God rules through His Word according to Revelation, which is often likened to the Lamb's testimony. So the tent of the tabernacle of the testimony is but a way to remind us that judgment comes from Jesus Himself. And I do hope you have a place in your theology that understands Jesus is a judge. And He will mete out His justice upon the earth. And even the Christological centrality of the justice, notice verse 6, even continues, out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. That clothing and that garb and material, it sounds almost exactly like what the Son of Man was wearing in Revelation chapter 1, telling us that these angels are none other than Christ's deputies for justice and judgment upon the earth, God's judgment is worthy of your worship. Earlier this afternoon, I came across a sermon from Jonathan Edwards. I think it was from something like 1734, and it was titled, The Unreasonableness of Indetermination in Religion. And it's a typically Edwards-like title. And it's just taken from a sermon on 1 Kings chapter 18. You might know this story where Elijah is, of course, having this great spiritual contest with the prophets of Baal. And he cries out to God's people, how long will you be caught between two ways? Following Baal or following Yahweh. And just the unsatisfaction and even, of course, the displeasure that comes to God when his people can't decide whom they're going to follow. Well, the very first sentence of that sermon says this, it is the manner of God, before He bestows any signal mercy on the people, first to prepare them for it. So you know anything about that scene and story in 1 Kings 18? It's this preparation of the dawn of revival that's coming through years and years of, of drought, of hardship, plowing up the soul, reminding them of the judgments of God that has come upon them, and He's preparing them, Edward says, for this outpouring of mercy. And I thought to myself, you could almost take that sentence from Edwards and just give it its mirror opposite, and it's true of Revelation. It would sound something like this. It is the manner of God before He bestows a signal judgment on the people, first to prepare them for it. Because isn't it true over and over that Revelation, we're seeing often in these interludes and these songs and occasional sights of the apostle along the way, there are warnings about the judgment that is coming. Just as God tends to tell His people, And work within him before he blesses them. He tends to shout to the world, doesn't he? And want to let that warning work in them. That they might know wrath is on the way. So as we begin to close, let me give you two more things to think about related to judgment and justice in this text. Taken from our final two verses. Number one, God's judgment is inevitable. It's inevitable. Notice verse 7. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God 
who lives forever and ever. Of course, what these scenes are telling us, these cycles of seven seals, the trumpets and the bulls, is that there's a time coming, not just throughout the ages, but even at the end of the age, when the wrath of God will be poured forth in all of its fullness, in all of its fury. God is warning the world. Well, what does He do with people who don't turn from sin and look to Him in faith? What does He do with all the hardness of heart in the world? Is it as though He's ineffectual to deal with anything about those enemies that would stand against Him? No. There was a time coming when God is going to pour forth His wrath upon the world. His judgment is inevitable. But I want you to see, secondly and finally, that God's mercy is currently accessible. His judgment's inevitable. His mercy is accessible. Look at verse 8. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So, of course, if you have eyes to see, you recognize how our text is bookended with the words finished. You see that at the end of verse 1. With these bowls, the wrath of God is finished. The text ends, no one can come into the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. What that means is there's a time coming when accessibility to God's presence is going to be closed off. That precisely the place where sinners need to be, they can't get in. Because it's too late. No one's going to listen if you're knocking at that time. No one's allowed in. In the same way the glory cloud would fall over Sinai, the glory cloud would fall over the tabernacle at the end of Exodus. No one is allowed in, not even Moses in Exodus chapter 40, because God has come. Well, the reason we can say God's mercy is accessible is because what the Bible is telling us and Revelation is reminding us is that God is restraining His wrath. That currently those gates are open, aren't they? The way into paradise is open. So earnest even, isn't it true, according to Revelation, that Jesus' desire to be with sinners is not as though He's just waiting for people to walk into His place. He comes searching. Didn't He say in an earlier letter, I'm knocking at your door. So God's judgment is worthy of worship because God's judgment is found in none other than Jesus Christ Himself who is always worthy of worship. So understand that God's warnings always have a welcome, don't they? This is the warning. It is judgment's inevitable. It's coming. It's on the way. It'll pour forth from the fullness of God's fury. But in His kindness and mercy, He longs for people to repent. And I wonder if you've done just that. Even in a smallish Sunday evening service, a room of this size, we dare not assume that all have taken His mercy so let me close with just a final word to the parents or those that have loved ones and friends in their lives that are apart from the Lord. Isn't it true that you have to take these texts about judgment and do something with them? I said a few weeks ago, if you were here, that you need to have wisdom and pray for discernment and how you might speak of this truth to your children. And isn't that true, of course? Speak of this truth to any loved one in your life, any friend in your life, any near one in your life who hasn't closed with Jesus Christ, because the question isn't, should I tell them about God's coming judgment? Maybe it's more, how can I tell them about God's coming judgment? So for them too, God's judgment 
will bring forth their worship. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you love us enough to warn us that your righteousness will carry the victory. We do thank you that your holiness is so pure and powerful, that you protect your people, that you conquer your enemies, that you bring us into your close fellowship. Give us hearts of this conquering choir. Give us souls that know the fullness of wrath that belongs to those who reject your Son. That they might not know Him only as judge, but a Savior and Redeemer. And we do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we want to.